Next on PIJN News, Dr. Chaps reports on these important issues. Hope and change. That was the theme of President Obama's election and even re-election campaign, but did it lead to less freedom? We interview Bill Federer, author of the book, Change to Chains, right now. Former Navy Chaplain Gordon James Klingenschmidt took a stand to defend religious freedom by daring to pray publicly in Jesus' name. Now he helps you by reporting the news, discerning the spirits, and praying the scriptures. Would you pray with us? Here's Dr. Chaps. God bless you in Jesus' name. My name is Chaplain Gordon James Klingenschmidt. Dr. Chaps, and you're watching PIJN News. On this show, we like to do three things. We report the news, we discern the spirits, and we pray the scriptures in Jesus' name. We're gonna take a break from reporting the news today because we have a special in-studio interview with our longtime friend, Bill Federer, a Christian historian from Missouri. Welcome, Bill, to the program. Well, Dr. Chaps, great to be with you. So, you wrote a book, Change to Chains. And, and it's along this theme of hope and change, which we all were very encouraged. I think America had this you know, uh, celebration, I think when Barack Obama was elected president because he promised a hopeful future and he promised all kinds of change. But what you saw is that actually, the way he's actually governed is to increase the size of government and reduce the amount of freedom or liberty. And you sort of have a play on words that that's like chains like people are putting chains on themselves. Can you explain what, what the title means to you? Well, it shows a progression, how we're going from freedom to bondage. Uh, people say America's the greatest country in the world. I decided to prove it. So I spent several years researching every civilization that has ever existed on the planet and found some interesting things. The first human records appear about three or 4,000 BC, Sumerian cuneiform on clay tablets in the Mesopotamian Valley. And so three or 4,000 BC, we're around 2080, that's 6,000 years of recorded human history, human beings writing down human records. And so 6,000 years is not that long. It's only 60 people living 100 years each back to back. And you think, how many have met someone who's lived 100 years, maybe a grandmother? We're talking 60 grandmothers, and you're all the way back to the beginning of recorded human history. And the most common form of government in this time is what? It's kings. Now they go by different names, despot, Caesars, Kaiser Khan, King, Maharaja Genghis Khan, Julius Caesar, Attila the Hunt. Power inevitably wants to concentrate into the hands of one person. Or dictators. Or dictators. And I believe it goes back to the fall in the garden and Cain, Kill, and Abel, and selfishness coming into the human DNA. So you put some babies in a playpen, one of them will take the rattle from the others. Put some kids on a playground, one of them is the bully hogging the ball. Put some people in the woods, one of them is the Indian chief, and put them in an inner city, one of them is the gang leader. So it's sort of the Lord of the Rings. Everyone wants this ring of power. And if you are friends with the king, you are more equal. If you are not friends with the king, you are less equal. And if you're an enemy of the king, you're dead. It's called treason. <laughs> so for most of world history, equality was how close of an orbit can you get to the king. And these kingdoms get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. I mean, here's Genghis Khan kills 30 million people from Korea to Hungary. And, but the biggest empire in world history was the King of England, 13 million square miles, half a billion people, all of India, a quarter of the world's population right there. And America wants to break away from this most powerful king and we have no army and no navy, just a bunch of courageous people with faith. And so when our founders set up our government, we decided to go in the opposite direction of a king. And we went as far away from a king as we could. We took the power of a king and broke it into three branches executive, legislative, and judicial, 
pitted them against each other, separated power federal to state level, and then tied up this federal Frankenstein with 10 handcuffs we call the first 10 amendments. So in a sense, all our Constitution is is a bunch of hurdles to prevent the rubber band from snapping back into the hands of a king. And unfortunately, after every crisis, we see this rubber band wanting to snap back. And so it was great that Lincoln ended slavery, but in the process, a lot of rights went from the states to the federal government. It was great that Franklin Roosevelt wanted to get us through the Depression, but he concentrates power with his New Deal programs. And Lyndon Johnson want, wants to end poverty, so he has his great society welfare state. And then he notices that if you give people money, they'll, they'll tend to vote for your reelection. And so now you have this entitlement program system where they really want to get as many people as they can to sign up for welfare, as many illegal immigrants to come in and sign up for welfare because they'll always vote for the party that is promising that. So they take the money from their opponents and they funnel it to those that they want to get to vote for them. Anyway, but um, you see Nixon uh, wanted to end drugs, war on drugs, and he concentrates power. Bush was this war on terror. He wants to make sure there's no more terrorist attacks. So he concentrates power with the NSA and the, the Patriot Act. And now the new president, no matter what the crisis is, the answer is the same. Let power concentrate into the hands of the government and everything will be fine. Unfortunately, what you're seeing is the government transitioning from the people ruling themselves back to one person. And that's the definition of a dictator, as a tyrant. And so we see this trend happening through history. So we're having change, but the change is moving us into the direction of chains, where we're going to end up being controlled by one person. So the hopeful promise that we were given is actually resulted maybe in regression so long as it increases the size of government which has to take away our freedoms. We're gonna take a short break and when we come back, Bill Federer is not, gonna, not just gonna explain that book but he's gonna give you a sneak preview of the sequel book that he's writing, Chains to Chains Part Two. We'll be right back with Bill Federer. This is PIJN News, defending your religious freedom. Dr. Chaps will be right back. Do you care about defending the Constitution? Sign a petition today to defend your Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms. You know, left-wing crazies go on these shooting sprees, but then the Democrats, like Joseph Biden, are using this as a pretext to take guns away from law-abiding citizens. Can you believe they literally want to publish the mental health records of military veterans so that they don't pass background checks so they can't exercise their rights when they come home? Senator Harry Reid, the leader, changed the filibuster rules, why? So he could stack the courts with gun-grabbing judges. Here are three of President Obama's nominees, Pillard, Millett, and Wilkins, couldn't get confirmed, but now they're on the court and they're allowing the DC police to fingerprint all law-abiding gun owners? That's not right. Sign a petition today, defend your Second Amendment rights. Visit PrayInJesusName.org. Again, that's PrayInJesusName.org. Empowering you, the grassroots activist. Here is Dr. Chaps. Welcome back, I'm Dr. Chaps. I'm here with Bill Federer, and we're talking about the differences between different forms of governments throughout human history. Bill, take us on a little historical track of some of those governments. Well, America's founders didn't like the king thing, and so they wanted to do the opposite. So they combed through history to look for alternatives. And the first nation they found that ruled itself without a king was Israel. Matter of fact, Harvard President Samuel Langdon gave an address in 1788, the Republic of the Israelites as an example to the American Republic. And so we see that Israel was unique. 
Israel was the first nation to rule itself without a king. So around 1500 BC, Israel came out of Egypt. Who controlled everything in Egypt? The Pharaoh. He owned the people, the latter cattle, <laughs> and the land. And so when the children of Israel came into the promised land, for those first 400 year, years, they did not have a king. So uh, everyone was equal before the law. And the law said there is no respect of persons in judgment. Rich or poor, everyone is treated the same. And that's where we get the book of the judges. The judges were right. kind of in charge of Israel until they wanted a king. Why did they change? Well, we say judges, but in effect, what happened was this was the period when Israel was ruled under the law. And the law said everybody's equal. Uh, the law said that uh, there's private land ownership. They did these surveys and lots and divided up the land. This is the beginning of private land ownership on planet Earth. Because wherever there's a king, you really don't own the land. It's always conditional of you staying on the nice side of the king. Uh, and the land was permanently titled to the families. So if they got in a pinch and sold it every 50 years, it reverted back to the family. This prevented a dictator from accumulating the land and putting the people back into servitude, slavery. So Israel had a year of Jubilee where all debts were forgiven. and then All debts were forgiven. It was a recognition of property rights. Amazing. Right. And so if you can own your own property, you can accumulate stuff. And the Bible called it being blessed. Karl Marx called it being a capitalist. Israel was the first nation with no police because everyone was taught the law. Everyone enforced the law. Israel was the first nation with no standing army because every man was in the militia. Israel had no prison system because the law said swift justice at the gate and a city refuge you could run away to. There wasn't anybody rotting away for years in a prison. Israel had no welfare system because the law said when you harvested your field, you leave the gleanings for the poor people to pick through. So the poor were taken care of without some government bureaucracy collecting everybody's money and giving it back and being tempted to give it back to those who can vote for their re-election, right? You know? And so the poor were taken care of. Israel had a system of honesty because the law said God hates lying, the bearing of false witness, and God hates unjust weights and measures. And so the people could do business and know that they were being having an honest business deal without... Uh, you know, being shysted or whatever. And so this laid the basis for commerce. And then Israel had the ability to elect their own leaders. And you think, what do you mean elect their own leaders? Well, Deuteronomy 1 says, Moses goes to the people, how can I, how can I bear your cumbrance and your burden? Take you, wise men, from amongst yourselves, known amongst your tribes, and bring them to me, and I will make them your leader. So in other words, you pick him up. Moses didn't go among three million people and say, you, 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 you're... No. He told, told the tribes, you take the best ones, the ones who hate covetousness, men of truth, you know, and, and, fear God. and fear God, and you bring them to me. You pick them out, bring them to me. And so the people got to choose their own leaders. And this became their Senate, or as they called it, their Sanhedrin. And it was the people that were putting them in. And so Israel was the first nation that could read. So in uh, Samaria, uh, in Mesopotamia, they had cuneiform characters, 1,500 cuneiform characters, but only the kings and the scribes could read them. It was an accounting method started to keep track of all the stuff the king owned. In Egypt, they had 3,000 hieroglyphic characters, and only the pharaohs and the scribes could read them. Matter of fact, the scribes kept them complicated on purpose. So it was job security. What is it? What does that hieroglyph say? I don't know. Let's get the scribe. He, he's a smart guy. <laughs> and so when Moses came down the mountain, he didn't have the law 
in 3,000 hieroglyphics or in 1,500, you know, cuneiform. He had the law in a 22-character alphabet that was so easy to learn the entire nation could read. This was the first instance in history of an entire nation that could read. And not only could they read, they were required to read. So the Levite priests taught them the law and they taught them how to read so they could read the law. And when Jesus is there, he would say, and you have read and you have, heard, you know, and, and so Jesus is, is talking to them. And like, hey, you've read this stuff. You're, everybody's literate. You know, that was sort of take, taken as a granted. But there. the rest of the world, the people were not literate, but Israel no. was a leader. No, very similar to Virginia and Maryland prior to the Civil War. They actually had laws making it a crime to teach slaves to read. Frederick Douglass, the Republican advisor to Republican Lincoln, uh, talked about how his, you know, Democrat slave master, uh, his, his sister was teaching him to read. And the slave master walks in and says, don't you dare teach slaves to read. They'll grow discontent and want to run away. Because literacy leads to freedom. We can govern ourselves if we can learn secret information that's available in books. Yeah, so if you are a dictator and you want to take control of a populace, you got to dumb them down. You got to, you know, if, if you do have a public education system in place uh, and you, you can't just get rid of it. You got to go through the motions of teaching, but your goal is to dumb them down so that they can't reason, they can't know what's really going on. And so it's easier for dictators to control masses of people if they're ignorant. And so Moses, when he came down the, the mountain, he had the law in a 22 character alphabet, the entire nation became literate. They had the first instance in history of a literate populace. So Israel, this system with no king, everyone equal, own private property, be blessed. It was all dependent on the priests teaching them the law. And they had elections. And they had elections. The, the, within the tribes, they got to choose their own leaders. So when the priests stopped teaching the law, the whole thing fell apart. Uh -oh. And so uh, you have Eli, the high priest, his own sons were sleeping with women in the tabernacle of meeting. Uh, I mean, here he is. He's not honoring the law, much less teaching it. And then there's the story of a Levite with a concubine. The law said a Levite's to marry a virgin of his own tribe. Here he is with a woman he's not even married to. And they're traveling and they're staying at a house and the house is surrounded by who? Sodomites. They're banging on the door saying, bring out that guy. In other words, that behavior, there's an aspect to it that is not content with doing it in their bedroom. They want to force it on other innocent people. Lust is not appeased by yielding to it. And a movement of lust is not appeased by yielding to it. They want more and more and more until finally they're banging on the door saying, and bring out that. And so this Levite church leader is so backslidden, he shoves the poor girl out the door. She's raped all night. And he comes out the next day. She's dead. He chops her body in 12 pieces, sends it to the 12 tribes of Israel. They come together. They kill the Sodomites. And by the time you grossed out, you read this line that says, every man did what was right in their own eyes. Why did they all do what was right in their own eyes? Because the priests stopped teaching them what was right in the Lord's eyes. Mm -hmm. So the whole thing fell apart. So they all go to Samuel, the prophet, and they say, this isn't working. We want to be like all the other countries. We want a king. Wow. Samuel cries, and the Lord said, they did not reject you. They rejected me. Right. That I should not reign over them. And so they get King Saul. He turns around and what? Kills almost all the priests. And they had Doeg the Edomite stab them all right in front of him. One escaped to David. And so from that point on, uh, Israel did not have the right to rule themselves. They were ruled by kings. Now, God still tried to work his plan out for them, but their chapter in history of ruling themselves was over. So it's a return to the dictator model. What happened in other countries then? Well, that was around, you know, 1500 B.C. is when Moses came out of Egypt, 400 years. So that would be around 11 or, or 1000 B.C. Let's fast forward to 600 B.C. in Athens. Now, one side of the world is China 
and it's landlocked. And if you want to break away and do a republic or something, the Chinese emperor would show up with a 100,000-man army and rip down the walls of your town and squash you. And so there were literally no efforts in, in China for freedom of other than an emperor. But the other side of the world is the Mediterranean. And it has oceans and storms and rocks and islands. And it's really hard to have a totalitarian dictatorship with all these variables. So it's in the Mediterranean that we see the next chapter of people experimenting with trying to rule themselves without a king. And we look at some of the Greek islands and they do judges in Sparta and so forth, but we focus on Athens. So Athens, around 6th century BC, had a king named Draco. And he had the first written laws. Prior to this, kings would rule on their whims, whatever mood they were in, and kill you, take away your stuff. And so the people of Athens says, look, at least write this stuff down so we can have some consistency. So he writes them down. Unfortunately, it's the death penalty for every other thing. And so they called King Draco's laws draconian laws. Very harsh. Well, finally, around 594 B.C., uh, Athens gets a leader named Solon, S-O-L-O-N. Solon invented democracy and left town, so they had to do it. In a democracy, everybody every day had to go to the market and talk politics. And if you did not keep up with politics every day in Athens, you were called an idiotus, an idiot. Ah. <laughs> and so uh, here, people... Now, if you have an agenda and there's a king, in order to pitch your agenda to the king, you got to get in to see the guy. And so, for example, China the emperor would have 2,000 concubines and would have these Mandarin eunuchs that would keep his harem. And you would have to bribe them with favors and money just to get in to the presence of the emperor to pitch your agenda. Well, if you're in Athens, you have an agenda. There's no king or emperor. How, how, do, you, how do you pitch your agenda to the whole city? You have elected officials, you have a Senate, you have a Republic. We're gonna take a short break. When we come back, Bill Federer is gonna talk about Plato's Republic and how that leads to real freedom, not chains giving you a megaphone in Washington, D.C. Dr. Chaps will be right back. Do you ever wonder how to discern your own thoughts from the thoughts that come to you from the Holy Spirit or angels or invisible demons? I'm Dr. Chaps and you've seen us talk about the gift of discerning of spirits. In fact, I wrote my PhD dissertation, How to See the Holy Spirit, Angels and Demons. But now, we have an exciting 17-part video Bible study on a four-disc DVD set that you can get for your small group or your church. If you just visit PrayInJesusName.org and offer a suggested donation of $99 or call us toll-free at 866-ObeyGod, get this 17-part video series and for a limited time only, we'll throw in the book for free. Visit PrayInJesusName.org. Get this important Bible study series for you and your church, or call us at 866-ObeyGod right now. He is the intersection of church and state. Here is Dr. Chaps. Welcome back, I'm Dr. Chaps. Fast forward now, we're in Greek history and Plato's Republic. Talk a little bit about the, the resurgence of this idea of elective democracy and representative government. So Athens, Republic, and um, you know they called it a democracy. Demos means people, krasi means rule. And so if you have an agenda and there's the people make the decisions, how do you pitch your agenda to an entire city? You get them together in an outdoor amphitheater and put on plays where you have comedies and tragedies. 
and you would ridicule and buffoon certain points of view and honor and extol and make noble other points of view. And people would leave the theater saying, I don't want to be like that poor guy that was made fun of. And gee, the other guy, man, he was. And so from that time till now, theater is always political in a country where the people make the decisions. So think of your favorite movie, your sitcom, your favorite TV show, and there's a character you identify with. They're cute, they're funny. And as the series goes on, this character begins to make morally compromising decisions. Lie here, cheat there, little revenge, little lust, and you find yourself apologizing for him. Saying, I know James Bond is with women he's not married to, but he's about to save the world. So can we get on with the story? And it sort of minimizes what before was a very strongly held value. And they usually make the people that hold to old traditional values look like buffoons and simpletons and idiots and backwards. And by the time you're done watching it, you turn off the show and say, well, I don't want to be like that guy that was made fun of, that old-fashioned religious guy. And the other guy, he was sort of cool, you know. And so from that time till now, the theater is always political. It's always political in a country where the people are making the decisions. Well, another way the Greeks had to influence was rhetoric. What's rhetoric? It's a speaking technique to sway people. And it was ethos, logos, pathos. Ethos is the ethical reputation of the person speaking. That's come down to us as the introduction of somebody. So you walk in a meeting late and somebody's talking to you, who is this guy? How does he know what he's talking about? But if you get there early, you say, well, this is Dr. So-and-so, and he's got all these degrees and these books and he's spoken all these places. And you're like, oh, he's... And so by hearing the introduction, it adds more weight to the exact same words that he's speaking. It makes the persuasiveness increased by the truth or the ethical reputation, the trustworthiness of the person speaking. That's ethos. Logos is the logical arguments the person presents. And pathos is the passion. It's the emotional appeal. All that together sways the populace, and it's the populace that makes the decision in the city. So if you're really good at rhetoric and you sway the people, right? So Athens, 380 B.C. Plato lived during this time, and he said that the city government would go through five stages. And the first stage, he says, rule of the capable. These are people that know how to run farms and businesses. They know how to run city governments. They're just responsible people. They do a good job. The city grows. And a second group wants to get involved in politics. Plato called them lovers of fame and honor. These are people that have no experience running anything. They just somehow got famous. Maybe they were a Greek actor or a Greek Olympic athlete. Everybody learned their name and liked them. They vote them into office, but they don't have any experience knowing how to run stuff. They just got in because they're famous. But because they really like the fame, they hate being defamed. And so these group of people you can sway and manipulate based on public opinion. So the first politicians go in, they're going to do what's right because they're a lover of principle and truth. Say what you want about them. The second group, they'll sway. And so what happens is, since they don't have experience running stuff, they yield to Plato called the human tendency of avarice, selfishness, covetousness, and they can't resist voting just a little bit of money out of the city treasury for their retirement. A little money to some brother-in-law's construction money to company. A little favor here, there, you know, a little perk here. A little money to some supporter that can funnel it back into their campaign. And before you know it, it turns into a third category called an oligarchy, a rule of few, an insider clique. Plato called them lovers of money. They raise taxes on everybody else, but they exempt themselves. They have pork they funnel uh, to their supporters uh, so they can put it back into their campaign to get them reelected. Uh, they pass laws everybody else has to obey, but they don't have to obey them. We kind of saw that with Obamacare when Congress and the president, they don't have to live under Obamacare, but all, but all the people do apparently. Right, and so this was the idea that they would exempt themselves from the own laws. And so this is a ruling class, Plato called them lovers of money. Uh, they need money to get elected and then they funnel money. So what happened was, that if you're friends with these people, you get the favors and you get to uh, 
get the pork and the government contracts and so forth. And if you're not their friend, you get audited. You get, you get come after. And so it turns into a division in society of the rich and the poor. Rich if you're an insider friend and poor if you're not one of them. And so Plato says the next step is the poor finally get upset and vote the bums out. And they set up a democracy, pure democracy. And Plato says that at first, it's the most charming form of government. The chief characteristic is lovers of tolerance. So you go from lovers of principle of truth, lovers of fame and honor, lovers of money, now lovers of tolerance. And he says it's like a bazaar where you can go down and pick any different viewpoint. It's like an embroidery patchwork with lots of colors. And everybody learns how to get along. And then they tolerate people that are a little bit off. Then they tolerate people that are a little bit more off. Till finally they're tolerating open, broad daylight crime and crooks and criminals and all kinds of immorality. Everybody just puts up with it. And he says that the, the, uh, the young man gives into uh, being disrespectful to his father. And if you correct him, he'll just shake his head. And he says the manner of Democrats, and that's Plato's word because he's describing a democracy. He says the manner of Democrats is every man does what is right in their own eyes. Wow. wow, the exact same line from Israel. Everyone does what is right. And the young man gives into libertinism and useless and unnecessary pleasures, even incest and unnatural union. And he casts off all shame. And, and so we see here, in Israel's case, the last step of them ruling themselves were these sodomites banging on the doors and there's total chaos. And then they end up getting King Saul. And so in Greece's case, Plato says, okay, what's going to happen? The young man's going to give in to passions and lusts. And the last step is his unnecessary pleasures. And in, in reference to homosexuality. In reference to homosexuality. And so then it turns into this moral chaos. And then they notice that the city treasury is sitting there. And it's a democracy. All they got to do is vote and so they can spread the wealth around. So they empty the treasury. And then they say, well, where can we get more money? Uh, the rich people. They vote to take the money from the rich people. Now there's no rich people left. And now there's a shortage and they can't have enough to go around. Well, don't cut back on my social security. Don't cut back on my welfare. Don't cut back on my retirement. Don't cut back. And they begin to bicker with each other. And this great republic, which rose starting with principle, ends up decaying and collapsing under the weight of the people's selfishness. And so the people begin to say, can't somebody come along and fix this mess? And that's when somebody comes along and they're all smiles. They promise everything to everybody. They begin to consolidate power and they start to turn it around. But then people say, wait a second, you're getting too powerful. And they cast it in his teeth. And he has the choice of getting rid of his power or getting rid of these people confronting him. And Plato called him a lover of power. And so he purges his administration of anybody with virtue. And he finally stands in the chariot of state holding the reins of power. And he's revealed as the tyrant. So democracy without virtue ends in chaos out of which a tyrant King Saul or a tyrant in, in Athens case, Alexander the Great arises. And they end up reigning because of their lust of power. We're almost out of time, Bill, but in about 30 seconds remaining, mention your old book and then what's gonna be maybe the title of your next book? Well, the, the old one is Change to Chains, the 6,000 year quest for global power. And uh, the new title will be similar to that, but AmericanMinute.com is my website and you can order that and also sign up for a free daily email called American Minute. American Minute. Bill Federer, renowned American Christian historian. Uh, visit his website, AmericanMinute.com. Also, please visit our website, PrayInJesusName.org. Again, that's PrayInJesusName.org. Sign up for our emails or call our prayer line at 866-ObeyGod. Thank you, Bill, and we'll uh, see you tomorrow. God bless you.
Chaplain Klingenschmidt is a graduate of the U.S. Air Force Academy who earned his Ph.D. in theology from Regent University. As a former Navy chaplain, by taking a public stand for freedom of speech and religious expression, and by sacrificing his own 16-year career and million-dollar pension, he was vindicated by the U.S. Congress, who changed the law and restored freedom for military chaplains to pray in Jesus' name. Dr. Chaps not only defended the Constitution, but his petitions have helped change the law in 10 states, restoring freedom to pray in Jesus' name. Dr. Chaps needs your financial support to stay on the air. Would you please send your best donation today? Please visit PrayInJesusName.org to donate online. Or you can mail a check to Pray In Jesus Name Ministries, Post Office Box 77077, Colorado Springs, Colorado 80970. You can also call us toll free right now at 866-Obey-God. That's 866-O-B-E-Y-G-O-D. Please sign up for our free emails at PrayInJesusName.org. Again, that's PrayInJesusName.org.